Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God who has spoken. You have revealed yourself uh, through um, your uh, through history, uh, interpreted by your word. Uh, we thank you for for it. We thank you that it speaks to us today. Thank you that you have revealed yourself most wonderfully. Uh, through the word who became flesh, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Saviour and our King. Uh, we thank you that we can know you so fully in him. Uh, we just pray that you would speak to us through your word today and change us uh, by what we hear. Um, make it uh, yeah, transform our lives for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Where then is boasting? It is excluded because of what law? The law that requires works? No because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that, had, that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also, who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And if there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have faith of Abraham. 
He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed so that and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Uh, well, friends, it is a bit of a longer reading today than we've had in the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, we do need to keep asking God to help us. I'm going to pray uh, as well again, and then we'll have a look at what God has to stay, say to us this morning. If you just join me, I'll pray for us. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray now as we look to your word, we pray for minds that are able to understand it. Father, by your spirit, please take your word uh, that we know gives life For each one of us, Father, each one in this room today, please take your word, plant it in our hearts, and please cause it to bear fruit in us. Lord, may we see more clearly today what you have done for us in Christ. May our faith be fuelled so that we might share the the faith of Abraham. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, there's one word that Christians, we use all the time here at church, and you'll uh, be aware of it, and uh, Christians use it all the time, uh, but that's, I think, often misunderstood in our society, in the world around us. And if the, the, the word is one that comes up again and again and again through this passage. It's the word faith, right? It's the word faith. It gets used in a whole lot of different ways. Some, sometimes you might hear it used to describe a belief system, you know, so you have different faiths. You have the Christian faith and the, the Buddhist faith and the Muslim faith, different faiths around the world. Uh, sometimes, on the other hand, it gets used to talk about as if it's some kind of uh, a thing that magically kind of lives in some people but not in others. So in, you, get, uh, you may have heard this said. Uh, people might say, oh, I just wish I had your faith. I wish I had your faith. Um, one of the most popular ways I think we can talk about faith, though, is to see faith as kind of a leap in the dark, a leap in the dark, blind faith. If you were a moviegoer in the 80s, you probably uh, remember one of the more famous examples of this kind of faith in the classic movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It's bringing memories to people who were around in the 80s. Uh, Indy, if you remember the movie, if you've seen it, uh, Indy has to get to the Holy Grail, but there's this huge chasm Uh, between him and where he needs to go. It's a sheer drop down. There's no way to cross it. Uh, But he has to step out, right? He says, he looks across this chasm, he says, it's a leap of faith. 
And then you hear Sean Connery, you see a shot of Sean Connery who's dying at this point, call out, I don't I can't get the voice. You must believe, boy. You must believe. And so Indy kind of summons up his courage, right? And what does he do? He takes his, his leap of faith, his step out into the dark. And of course, if you have seen the movie, you'll know that he steps out and thud, his foot lands on this uh, uh, a um, bridge that goes across the chasm that you can't see if you're looking straight at it, but as the camera pans around, you see this thin bridge that he could use to get across. And for lots of people, lots of people, um, that's what faith is, right? This kind of leap in the dark. Well, friends, uh, as Steve mentioned earlier, we've been reading through this letter of the Apostle Paul to the Romans. Uh, this incredible message of the gospel has been front and centre, this great announcement to the world that Jesus is Lord. This stunning claim, uh, part, of, part and parcel of Paul's great gospel, uh, and we've, we've read it as we've sort of worked through Romans, part and parcel is Paul's great claim that all people everywhere, every culture, every race, every background, everyone who has ever lived has in themselves rejected God's good and loving rule, uh, and instead have turned to idols, to other things, instead of worshipping the Creator, to worship created things. And because of that, all people, we've heard as we've read along, uh, all people are facing God's righteous anger against human wickedness. When we're standing in His court, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, when we're standing in His courts, uh, before him as judge, none of us have anything to say in our defence. But then, of course, we heard last week, didn't we? We heard last week of the incredible relief of the gospel, this great jewel that Paul lays out on this dark background, the glorious reality of the gospel, that while we have no righteousness of our own, uh, God gives us a righteousness a right standing with him gives us a righteousness from outside ourselves, not through what we've done, but through what Jesus has done for us. He took our sin, died our death, so that we could have his righteousness, his life. And we heard last week, um, uh, part, uh, a central part of the passage last week, that great little paragraph uh, that we heard, uh, it talks about how this righteousness that comes outside of ourselves is received by faith, by faith, it's given through faith in Jesus Christ. So what Paul does now, as he's sort of uh, in this beautiful summary paragraph that we looked at last week, encapsulated the great gospel message, what Paul does now is zoom in on this uh, idea of faith and what faith is. And it's so important because if you've been tracking along up to this point, you'll know that in effect what Paul is saying uh, is that while we have all sorts of distinctions between us that we think sort of separate us from other people, uh, there is really only one distinction that really matters, that really matters. If the gospel is true, if all of us are levelled before God by our sin, uh, if the only way to be made right with God is through faith, then there is nothing else as important, is there? There's nothing else as important as faith. Nothing else matters as much. And so Paul spends this whole section that we've just heard read to us, 
uh, going into detail about this, about faith, about what this faith is, what it looks like, this faith that brings righteousness. And I think we'll see, I hope we'll see as we work through that um, how different it is from all those other pictures of faith that we kind of have uh, in our society around us. Uh, uh, To have saving faith isn't simply to hold a certain set of beliefs, as in, this is the Christian faith, this is another faith. That's, That's not what's on view in terms of saving faith, a list of things that you might believe in your head. Uh, and faith is not kind of a thing that sort of, a thing that I have that some people don't have. Uh, it's not a leap in the dark, it's not a blind stab. But for Paul, here in Romans, this faith, and that, this faith that is cru- crucial for every single person, that is the most important thing, uh, is at its heart trust. Personal trust. Placed, trust placed in someone who is trustworthy. Trust placed in someone who is trustworthy. And the great hope of this passage is that, that, that this trust can be a living reality for anyone. Because it's not based on you and what you do, what you have done, how good you are. The important thing about biblical faith about this trust, is not the faith itself, but the one who the faith is placed in. It's not, uh, that's, uh, that's the important thing about faith. And that's what we'll, hopefully we'll, look, uh, uh, we'll come out as we look through this remarkable passage. There's lots in there. We'll sort of get a bit of an overview of the whole thing before we draw some threads together. Uh, it will help you, though, to have the Bible open in front of you so we can, you can track along. There's also a bit of an outline in the handout uh, that you may find helpful. <coughs> helpful. Um, we left off last week, at, at, uh, starting at verse 27 of chapter 3 there. Uh, and it, again, if you've been with us along the way, you'll know that Paul does this sometimes. He kind of raises questions that he thinks other people might be asking. He, he anticipates their questions and, and answers it before they have a chance to even ask them. Uh, he does the same thing here. He's just laid out this gospel, and then he goes on in verse 27. should come up on the screen. Uh, Where then is boasting? It is excluded Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Or is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Now what's going on here, friends? Um, in, the, in the background to uh, what Paul's writing here uh, is uh, the Jewish people that he, uh, the part of uh, a significant chunk of the Roman church, uh, Jewish Christians, Jewish people who uh, had been given God's good law. Uh, the Jews had been given God's good law, uh, but who had, who had um, found themselves tempted to get their relationship with God all around the upside down, all around the wrong way. Uh, they were meant to obey God's law. They were meant to obey God's law, but it was as a thankful response to what God had done to them uh, through trusting in his grace and salvation. Instead, they started to think that, uh, that their following of God's law made them special and set them apart, made them a cut above everyone else. They thought that their keeping their rules made them right with God. And if you think you're right with God because you do all the right stuff, because you keep all the rules, that will make you proud. 
Alternatively, it'll make you despairing. But if you kind of are self-controlled enough to do some of it and self-deceptive enough to not see your own sin, it'll make you proud. It'll make you proud and make you boastful. But Paul is saying here, right from the start there, he's saying, no, if you see how people are made right with God, not through these works of the law, but just through faith, if you see that, you'll know there's no place for boasting at all. Uh, if you were here last week, again, uh, we heard this incredible story. I don't know if you remember Steve's story about Roy Hallams, uh, this guy who was captured by ISIS and you know, he kept in this sort of um, uh, concrete basement for years, I think it was. Is that right? Um, and eventually he had sort of the... the he was... Uh, he had his basement entombed. He had it concreted over, and he was he was a dead. He was basically dead in this tomb. He was left to die. Uh, all hope was gone for this guy, right? Completely unable to save himself. But we heard last week in this story, right, where he was dead in himself, unable to do anything. Hope came from outside, right? This hope, this great hope, came from outside. We heard how he was uh, eventually he was dramatically rescued, right, by the U.S. forces. Um, and then we also heard how this that story sort of paints a picture of what Paul's trying to say about the gospel, uh, what he's been describing about it—the hopelessness of our situation in sin and our rebellion—and the wonder of the gospel breaking in and setting us free. And what Paul and Paul's saying here, as we start this passage, if all if all of that's true, then there's no place for boasting at all. I mean, can you imagine the press conference when Roy Hallams got back to the US, right? Can you imagine him getting back and when he's asked how he was saved, leaning back with a bit of a self-satisfied smile and saying, "Well, I don't like to brag about it, but uh, uh, I w- when I was lying helpless and emaciated facing certain death and suddenly the soldiers broke in, I did a pretty good job at letting them gra- drag me out of the pit. You know? uh, uh, they, they tried to put some water in my mouth. I didn't spit it out. You know? I, I, I think I should deserve some of the praise for this rescue. I mean, can you see how ridiculous that would be? And what Paul's saying here is, well, it's just the same with us and God. How ridiculous to boast when we are saved only by his grace and just through faith. Paul's saying that about our relationship with God through Jesus. Uh, but one of the big questions for Paul's Jewish readers at this point would have been, well, how does that, where does that leave us with the whole Jewish system, what they call the law, the whole system of rules and regulations that God had put in place for uh, his people in the Old Testament? Verse 31 uh, Paul asks this question, so do we then nullify the law by this faith? He, and Paul's answer straight away is no. We don't, rather, we uphold the law. Not at all, we uphold the law. To be made right with God through faith, it doesn't undercut the law, it doesn't nullify it to mean it was totally useless and wrong. Uh, this is what the law always pointed towards in the Old Testament. It always pointed towards faith in Christ. The law is good in itself, but it was never meant to be used to earn us righteousness. It was never meant to be used to earn our way into favour with God. Uh, It was never meant to be used so you could say, look God, I've done all this. I've kept your laws, pretty much. (laughs) I've pretty much kept your laws, and so now I'm in the right with you. 
No, the law was always meant to be followed only after already being made right with God through faith by his grace. And when that order is reversed, when we think that obeying God makes us right with God, Paul says that only brings judgment and wrath. Uh, A few weeks ago in 3 verse 20, you can flick your eye up there, it says this law uh, brings knowledge of sin. It's faith that saves, not works. We spend a bit of time in this little chunk of this paragraph. Uh, What Paul goes on to say through the rest of chapter 4 is basically... Um, He basically goes on to say, it's faith that saves and not works, and it's always been that way. It's always been that way. It's always been faith that makes us right with God. Right back in the beginning, which is why he zooms right, he sort of pans his camera right back to the very start with Abraham in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered... Uh, our for, sorry, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter. In fact, if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith, his trust in God's promise to him, we're told, was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul says, it's right back there, right at the start in Genesis, in the Jewish scriptures, right from the beginning. Um, This this idea of credited is really crucial here, this idea that his faith was credited. And you probably can pick it up from the word, it's a financial term, uh, to credit something to your account. Uh, Abraham was sinful just like all of humanity, and if you know the story of Genesis, you'll know that. He, he wasn't perfect himself. He couldn't stand before God on his own. But God graciously called him. God gave him incredible promises. And he believed God. He trusted God's promise. And because of that, because he humbly received and trusted the word that God had given him, we're told that God saw that faith. Uh, and even though in himself he was a sinner who didn't deserve it, God gave him, credited a status of righteousness, of being right with him. God credited this righteousness to Abraham. Uh, Back in Paul's day, uh, there were some who tried to get around this idea uh, and who said that, who tried to make even Abraham's faith into a work. Let me explain a little bit about that. They said that his faith uh, was more like his faithfulness his obedience to God, uh, and it was seen as a work that God, that he, he did and that God kind of owed him because he was so faithful. God saw him and saw that and was in, was, you know, he was, uh, uh, in obligation to Abraham. And you can see right, why, right? There is something deep in us that really hates the idea of grace at the end of the day. It hates the idea that we have nothing to contribute, uh, that we're just like in ourselves, we're just like Roy Hallam's, as good as dead in our cell and can do nothing. It's humbling. But before God, it's true. There's this crucial distinction here. What Paul's talking about is faith, not is our faith, not our faithfulness. Paul's talking about our faith, not our faithfulness. We are not righteous by our faithfulness, by our ability to do all the right things. We are righteous by our faith 
in the one who is faithful, our trust in the one who is trustworthy, the one who is faithful to his promise. And that's how Abraham was righteous, because he trusted the one who was faithful. He trusted God. Uh, that's what Paul goes on to say in verse 4, now to the one who works Wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. Uh, you get that idea, right? If you do work, your, your employer is obliged to pay you. Uh, so they're not doing you a favour when they pay you. Now, that's not what's going on here. Verse 5, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. You understand the, how Paul is using work there? He's not saying to the one who doesn't have a job. He's saying to the one who doesn't work in order to um, please God. Who doesn't, the one who doesn't work in order to please God, but trusts in, in order to earn righteousness, if that makes sense. It doesn't work in order to earn righteousness, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly. Their faith is credited as righteousness. Well, friends, uh, at this point, we're going to keep sort of um, looking, reading through this passage together before we draw things together. At this point, Paul turns to a different question. Um, this all might have been good for Abraham, right? The, the, the Jewish person reading this might think, this might have been fine for Abraham, but he, Abraham, if you know the story of the Bible, Abraham came before the law was given. Abraham came before the law was given. So what about... Someone after the law was given. Didn't things change then about how we're made right with God? Uh, and what about after Moses, who gave the law? Uh, well, Paul goes on to write, and you see how he pulls out uh, the greatest king in Israel's history who came after Moses, David, and he says, no, 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 David's exactly the same as Abraham. He comes after the law. He was under the, mo- the law of Moses but it's exactly the same. He knows that he's right with God only because of God's grace and forgiveness, not because he did all the right things. Verse 6, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. A quote from Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Abraham, right with God through faith, not works. Even after the law came, people were a right relationship with God was through God's grace and mercy and forgiveness, through trusting in that. Well, okay, Paul. Paul's imaginary sort of uh, dialogue might go, okay, Paul, but what about circumcision? Aha! You see, circumcision uh, was before, circumcision was around Abraham's time. Uh, circumcision wasn't introduced with Moses and the law. And if there was one thing that marked you out as God's special person in the Old Testament, it was being circumcised. Um, so what's going on there? Perhaps, perhaps it is through doing this thing that makes you right with God. Well, Paul won't give an inch. He just, keep, he just goes back to the Jewish scriptures and says, look, it's plain. It wasn't any work that Abraham did that earned his right standing with God. Verse 9, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised? 
or before. It was not after. It was before. After he, and he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness. As in, you know what a sign is? It points to something. It's not the thing itself. The circumcision pointed to his relationship with God. With God. It didn't create the relationship. That was through faith, through trust in God's promise. And he goes on, verse 12, by the end of that little paragraph, and he is then also the father of the circum... Uh, sorry, back in verse 11. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised. See what he's saying here, but only the circumcised who follow in the footsteps of the faith. The important thing isn't whether you're circumcised or not. That was just a sign pointing towards your relationship with God. The important thing is your faith, your trust in God's promise, your dependence on him. And it gets worse for this poor person arguing with Paul. Don't get into an argument with Paul. Uh, He kind of just keeps turning the screws tighter and tighter. In verse 13, he says, uh, Not only are we right by faith and not by works, he goes a bit further and says, if you, de- if you do depend on your works, on what you do, you are actually undermining everything. You're the one. So he kind of does a, he turns the tables on the head. Remember before someone was saying, all this talk about faith undermines the law. No, 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 Paul says, if you, if you depend on the law, on your works, you're the one who is undermining faith. Verse 13, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world. You can read about those incredible promises in Genesis 12 and 15, these great promises that God would heal the world through Abraham's family. He would bring uh, blessing to the world. It was not through the law that uh, Abraham and his offspring received the promise, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith, so if those who depend on the law are the heirs, faith means nothing. And that promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And there, where there is no law, there is no transgression. It, it, there's lots in there, but I think at, at its heart, Paul's saying it's crucial to get this ordering right. Back in, uh, at the end of chapter 3, we looked at, as we said, you, you depend on faith, you actually uphold the law. Uh, you depend on the law, you undermine faith, you nullify it. Um, okay, we've come to the, the last chunk of what Paul writes from verse 16 on. Uh, and from this point on, at verse 16, it should be coming up on the screen, Paul broadens out his discussion. He's really hammering home this idea that you're right through faith, not through works of the law. Uh, and he broadens it out and, and he says... With Abraham, the whole world was always on view. The whole world was always on view. Right from the start, Abraham was promised he'd be the father, not just of one nation of the Jews, but of many nations, an international family. Verse 16, Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, the Jewish nation, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead 
and calls into being things that were not. And then from verse 18, we get this beautiful description of Abraham's faith. We'll keep reading verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since it was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Friends, we mentioned at the start different ideas about what faith is, if you remember. Uh, there's another popular version, and it's kind of an extreme example. Oh, it's t- the, the idea of faith as a leap in the dark, this is taking it to its extreme. Uh, this is the idea that faith is believing something against all the evidence. I don't know if you've heard this idea, and it's often used to ridicule faith believing something that you deep down know isn't true. It's against all the evidence. Uh, Is that what is going on here for Abraham? Believing something that he knew deep down wasn't true, despite all the evidence against it. Do you see what Paul's writing there? Abraham certainly had lots of evidence against this hope. He had lots of evidence against his hope against believing that he'd be the father of an international family that would bring God's blessing to the world. Right, This incredible promise, he had lots of evidence that would suggest that that was a foolish thing to believe. Almost 100 years old, uh, without any children. His wife, Sarah, well, she was a little younger, but she was around 90 and, and barren, no children either. Uh, This is crucial, friends, and this is where we're going to sort of draw things together today. Uh, Can you see what's going on here for Abraham, this father of us all, this great man of faith? I want to suggest to you that it's not actually this idea of believing something that you really know isn't true against all the evidence. Uh, He did hope against hope. We're told that, right? He did hope against hope. But it wasn't a blind faith that went against all the evidence. It wasn't as if all the evidence was stacked up this side and he just suddenly refused to see it and walked the other way. No, you see what Paul's saying. There was plenty of evidence stacked up this side. But that wasn't the end of the story. He had one piece of evidence that outweighed everything else. No matter how significant they were, he believed and so became the father of many nations just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. What is this other reality that he clung to even when everything seemed against him? He had the word of God. He had the promise of God to him. His faith was not irrational. It wasn't believing something he knew deep down to be a lie against the evidence. 
God had spoken. God had promised. There were many reasons for him to doubt that promise, as we've seen, his age, Sarah's barrenness, and it must have been so tempting to give up trusting in that promise, right? But he didn't. He knew God had spoken. And he knew God was the one who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not. And he was fully persuaded, despite everything that was over here, he was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Abraham trusted God and his word more than what his eyes could see. Paul finishes this section by sort of shifting the camera from Abraham to us. How this all relates to us, us who come after Jesus. Verse 23, the words, it was credited to him, were not written to him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. See what's going on here, brothers and sisters. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, entrusted himself, rested in God and his word to him, the God who gives life to the dead. That faith was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul's saying it's exactly the same for us, except there's one major difference, right? Abraham had God's word to him, God's promise that he would make Abraham the father of many nations and he would bless the world through that family, through his international family. But friends, we have so much more, don't we? We have so much more. We have God's ultimate and final word, Jesus Christ. We have his written word, the scriptures that testify to Jesus, to the historic reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. We have God's spirit that takes this objective reality and brings it alive in our hearts. Abraham was fully persuaded because God had spoken to him and given him his promise. How much more, friends, can we be fully persuaded in the power of this God? We have the promise, the certain word, that Jesus' death was for our sins and his resurrection was for our justification, does make us right with God. But we're the same as Abraham, right, in a sense. There are many things, many things before our eyes that could make us lose hope. I don't know what it is for you. Uh, maybe you feel that God's promise can't be for you because of your past, things you've done. Maybe it's your own doubts about life and faith. Maybe it's your fears about, about life. Maybe there are things that you just don't understand. Maybe you see all the wickedness and chaos in the world. Maybe you've been hurt before and you've learnt not to trust anyone. There, there are experiences, many experiences we have, many things we see around us that can take away our hope. But friends, like Abraham, and infinitely more so, 
we have another reality that outweighs all of that. If you have seen Jesus, if you have heard his great the great announcement that he is Lord of all, that he is the Lord who through his death and resurrection offers all people the free gift of righteousness, the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life to all who would trust him, the Lord who has promised to return and renew this world in life and peace. Friends, faith simply hears that word and receives it, says, yes, I entrust myself to you, to you, Jesus. So friends, will you trust him today? If you're not a Christian person, you can do that right now. You can hear and trust this good news about Jesus. Perhaps you need to get to know Jesus more, and there are lots of people here who would love to help you do that. Uh, If you are a Christian, though, uh, will, will you, like Abraham, did you notice as we read through, Abraham was strengthened in his faith. I don't think what Paul's saying there is Abraham tried really hard to believe. He kind of kind of like um, Indiana Jones before he leapt out, just strengthened himself to believe. I don't think that's what's getting at. Uh, I think what Paul's getting at is it means having seen Jesus, having heard and believed the word of the gospel, for us to be strengthened in our faith means for us to more and more find our strength not in ourselves, but in the one we trust. To find our strength in him, in trusting him, in resting in what he has done for us. And that is not irrational, mindless belief. It's not a leap in the dark. It's not just a set of things that you might believe. Once you've come to know God through Jesus, the creator and judge of all the earth, who justifies ungodly people by his blood, once you see him, and in a moment we're going to sing, once we turn our eyes upon him, this faith, this hope against hope, this trust in him, do you see how it is actually the only rational position to take? Uh, not to trust him would be irrational, right? Totally foolish. Uh, it would have been for Abraham and it would be for us too. So friends, will we trust him today? I'm going to pray for us. As we finish up, will you join me in prayer? Our gracious God, we do thank you for the faith of Abraham. Thank you that against all hope, in hope he believed, entrusted himself to the word that you had given him. Father, strengthen us in that same faith. We pray that we might, like him, uh, in the face of everything that might cause us to lose hope, that we might keep coming back again and again to the word you have spoken to us in Jesus Christ, that we might turn our eyes upon him, look full in his wonderful face, so that the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Amen.